Good morning. If you would open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 31, we are going to conclude our, our exposition, our preaching through Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 31. I'm going to begin by reading Deuteronomy 34, verses 9 through 12. Uh, the, the author of this portion of Deuteronomy uh, writes this by inspiration of the Holy Spirit for Israel and also for us, beginning in verse 9. And Joshua the son of Nun was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. Would you pray with me briefly? Father, we ask now that you would open your word up to us and open us up to your word that we might behold the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Please bless us to that end, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I mentioned, we are, we are finishing reading Deuteronomy this morning. And in order to, to bring this book to a close, though, I, I first want to read you a passage, not from Deuteronomy, but the record of an account that happened 1,400 years after the end of the book of Deuteronomy, and about 2,000 years ago from our perspective. In our Bible read-through this last week, we read the account in the Gospel of Mark of the transfiguration of Jesus Christ, and, and it is a strange story, to be sure. But I'm confident, though, that it will help us understand the ending of the book of Deuteronomy. So in Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 8, this, this is what we read. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he, that is Jesus, was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. Now, why would Mark record this very strange story? I mean, this is odd. There's, there, Jesus is transfigured, whatever that means, right? It, it has something to do with radiant light and glory that are emanating from Jesus himself. And then Moses and Elijah make an appearance, and I have no idea how they recognize him. Maybe Moses is lugging around Ten Commandments or something. Or maybe they just have those ubiquitous, hello, my name is Moses uh, stickers that we use in the church so often. I don't know. But they recognize them as Moses and Elijah. 
what's going on here? What does this have to do with the book of Deuteronomy? Well, I hope that our exploration of the final chapters of Deuteronomy will, will make this clear because I think that what happened on that mountain, again, 1400 years after Moses died. So 1400 years from the end of, end of Deuteronomy until the, the coming of Jesus Christ in his first advent, 1400 years after he died, it's going to shed a lot of light on Deuteronomy 31 verses 34, our passage today. It's going to shed a lot of light on the book of Deuteronomy as a whole. In fact, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, actually the entire Old Testament itself. And I think that as we do that, we're going to learn something about ourselves as well. So maybe you're here this morning, you, you, you are not yet a Christian, you're exploring this. Let me ask you this, as, as you listen for the next 35 minutes or so, where are you looking for meaning and significance? Just ask yourself that and then listen to what God's word has to say. For, 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 for the rest who are here, you, you are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. How do you read the Bible? And where do you see yourself in the biblical storyline? Are, are you able to follow the storyline of the Bible and identify what God has been doing to glorify himself and bring about a great salvation that includes even you? What does the book of Deuteronomy have to do with you? So let's start with a bit of context, and this is going to take a while. You might be thinking, oh my goodness, this is like four chapters. I, I would say don't worry, but that might be lying. So we'll just, so let's context though. In these final chapters, Moses is not just bringing the book of Deuteronomy to a close, but he's really bringing the Pentateuch, the Torah, to a close. And then all through the rest of the Bible, Whenever the law or the law of Moses are mentioned, the first five books of the Old Testament are what is being referenced. And these first five books are cited and they are presupposed a lot throughout the Bible. The law of Moses is going to be the context in which pretty much the rest of the Bible takes place. The law of Moses will govern Israel throughout the rest of the Old Testament and onto the pages of the first part of the New Testament. It is in effect all during Christ's first advent ministry. So this law of Moses, this is what Jesus, the context in which Jesus comes, right? It's the law of Moses, specifically the Christian's relationship to it, that preoccupies so much of the New Testament letters. Remember our preaching through the book of Galatians uh, almost a year ago, where we kept asking the question, how do you become a, a true child of Abraham? Do you have to obey the, the law, the law of Moses, in order to be saved? And of course, Paul's answer to the, in the book of Galatians was, no, you don't. That was something in the past. But that's the question. So the law of Moses looms large throughout the rest of the New Testament. It preoccupies a lot of the New Testament apostolic letters. And even to this day, Jewish people who don't understand Jesus to be the Messiah, they submit to the teachings of the Mosaic law. Here's what Jesus thought of the law, the law of Moses. He said in Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not a iota, not a dot, 
will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. The law of Moses and the prophets. Interestingly enough, on the transfiguration, who's there? Moses, probably representing the law, and Elijah, representing the prophets. Okay? Jesus understood his entire life and ministry as the fulfillment of the law. For Christians, whether Jew or Gentile, the law is vital to our story. It's an aspect of our story that thankfully, as we've been reading through Deuteronomy, thankfully is much of it is behind us, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't have implications for who we are today. It is, if you will, the law of Moses that we've been looking at all through Deuteronomy, it's part of our origin story. It's part of who we are. For us, it is safe to say that if you do not understand what the law is, what the Torah is, then I think you're going to have a difficult time understanding the Bible. That's why we've been preaching through Deuteronomy here. So there's a lot at stake in these final chapters. So we're going to do a quick recap. Moses, as will be very evident in our passages today, he knows that his time is drawing to a close. Why? Because the Lord literally tells him, your time is drawing to a close. (laughs) You are going to die very, very soon. Moses has led the children of Israel out of slavery in Egypt to the eastern banks of the Jordan River. That's where the entire book of Deuteronomy takes place. They're poised to enter into the promised land. As they have been traveling ever since leaving Egypt, Moses has been writing. The first five books of the Bible were written by Moses, and he is writing first and foremost to the people of Israel, giving them what he understands by inspiration of the Holy Spirit they need to know in order to flourish in the land. He tells them of the creation of the cosmos, the first man and the first woman, He tells them how sin has entered the world through the disobedience of that first couple. He also tells them that a child will be born. It was promised to Eve from her who will crush the deceiver. This child to be born will remedy the greatest catastrophe that had ever befallen people up to that point and even ever has since to show that merely starting over to remedy the problem will not work. The Lord judged the world. Moses writes about this. He started over with Noah, but that didn't take care of the rebellion problem. Rebellion was bound up in the hearts of men and women, and it was safely aboard the ark, even as everyone else died. So the Lord started a new plan. He called an individual, Moses wrote to them. His name was Abraham. He was called out of Chaldea to travel to the land of Canaan, and he promised to give that land to Abraham and to his descendants. And in fact, the Lord promised to bless all of the nations through Abraham and through his progeny. The family of Abraham, they grew over time. Eventually, they made their way down to Egypt. One of Abraham's line, Joseph, rose to power in Egypt, and the Lord used him to feed the world. More importantly for us, though, to keep that family line of Abraham alive and going strong. 
the family of Abraham, by this time now called Israel, after one of Abraham's grandchildren, multiplies into 12 large tribes or clans. The head of each was a son of Jacob or Israel. That family grew so strong that it was seen as a threat to the Egyptian king, the Pharaoh, who didn't remember what Joseph had done, and he enslaved all of Abraham's family, which was then named Israel, again, after one of those grandchildren of Abraham. It is at this point that the Lord raised up a man named Moses to deliver the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt and lead them to the promised land. The Lord judged Egypt with a series of 10 plagues and miraculously led the people out of Egypt. Now, I'm not just giving you context. I'm telling you the story of the Pentateuch in case you were wondering, what is Todd doing here? Of vital importance to the Lord's plan was the covenant that he made with the nation of Israel. Moses had already played the role of leader, emancipator, prophet, mediator for the people of Israel. Now at Mount Sinai, Moses then became the great law giver. The Lord used Moses to initiate a conditional covenant with the people of Israel. It had moral and ceremonial and civil laws, most of them summarized in the famous Ten Commandments. And Moses told the people that if they would keep the covenant, if you keep the covenant, Israel would be the Lord's treasured possession, and his plan for them was that they would be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Now, before the ink is dry on the tablets, the Israelites failed to keep the covenant. And eventually, they even refused to enter the promised land out of fear. They strangely demand to go back to Egypt. The Lord condemned that generation of Israelites to wander around in the desert for 40 years until they all died. It would be their children who would enter into the promised land which is where the book of Deuteronomy begins. That next generation of Israelites ready to enter the promised land. Moses, the great prophet of the Lord, he recounts to those people in the book of Deuteronomy the covenant and its commands. He warned them that if they obeyed, there would be great blessing from the Lord. But if they disobeyed, there would be devastating judgments culminating in exile, expulsion from the promised land. That was two weeks ago. Last week, after giving the nation some choreography on how to ratify the covenant when they entered the land, Moses prophesied that Israel would not be able to live up to their obligations, and they would indeed enjoy, if you will, all of the curses that God promised would come on them for disobedience, including the mother of all curses, exile. They would be forcibly vomited out of the land into strange lands that were not their own. Only after they repented would the Lord restore them back to the land. And only after all that would God completely rectify the situation by not changing the laws so that the people could obey, but by changing the hearts of the people so that they would obey. And that brings us to the close of the book. How would Moses, the great leader of Israel, the great prophet, the great mediator, the great lawgiver, close out his magnum opus?
the Torah. So we begin Deuteronomy 31, 1 through 2. I'm not going to read four chapters to you, okay? We'll read a few verses here and there. Deuteronomy 31, 1 and 2, this is what Moses writes. So Moses continued to speak these words to all Israel. And he said to them, I am 120 years old today. I am no longer able to go out and come in. The Lord has said to me, you shall not go over this Jordan. Okay, now Moses, he had been with Israel since their liberation from Egypt. And he joined them, quite frankly, as an old man already. He was 80 years old when he first spoke to Pharaoh. But he notifies Israel, I'm not going to be able to continue to lead you. He said it was because he was too old. But the real reason, as we'll find out, is that the Lord had forbidden him to go across because of Moses' own sin. Moses would not go with them into the promised land. And that had to have been terrifying to the Israelites because it had been Moses from day one, ever since they left Egypt. Moses was the one who prayed for them, who interceded for them, who did the miraculous things that the Lord did through him in order to save them. With, if there's no Moses, they had to be thinking, there's no Israel, what are we going to do without him? But Moses reassures them, I'm not going to go with you, but the Lord will go with you. The Lord will go with you. He will fight for you. Of course, that's how it had always been, right? Moses was only the mediator. And so he encouraged them with the promise, God will never leave you or forsake you. He then called Joshua forward. He basically hands Joshua in Deuteronomy 31 the baton of leadership or the staff of leadership or the scepter or whatever it is that they had, right? Joshua will be with you. Joshua, you are to be strong and courageous, Moses instructs him. Why? Because the Lord will be with you, Joshua. Joshua, the Lord will not leave you or forsake you as you take the people of Israel into the land. The Lord would not leave Israel without a shepherd as long as they were faithful to him. In what follows in Deuteronomy 31, Moses gives provision for reading the law every seven years at the Feast of Booth. And if you remember a couple, a couple weeks ago, I said that part of a, the old covenants was that there had to be some sort of ceremony or provision for reading and rereading the, 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 the conditions of the covenant. And so that's what Moses gives them here. And, and he tells them that this next generation, they have to learn to fear the Lord. And that would occur through the hearing of the word of the Lord. Why do you repeat the words of the law every seven years? So that your children and your children's children will learn to fear the Lord. And nothing has changed in that respect. Why? Because the word of the Lord reveals the Lord. We don't fear the Lord because of threats or terror. We fear the Lord, that is, we respect we worship the Lord because we know today that the word of God mediates Jesus Christ, the true word of God, to us. And that's, that's why we're gathered here today to, to hear the word of God preached. I know you're not going to remember much from what I say, even like two hours from now. But it, a steady diet of the word of the Lord helps us to, uh, well, it, it feeds us. 
and 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 we learn to fear the Lord. That's why we encouraged everyone to do the Bible read through this year. It's we read it. It teaches us not just that we ought to pray, but also teaches us to pray, which is a big part of what we've been doing this last week. In Deuteronomy 31, the Lord then again reiterates to Moses and to Joshua that the people will not be faithful. They will not be faithful. They would turn away, and when they did, God would actually forsake them. Look at Deuteronomy 31, verses 16 and 17. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. Then this people will rise in horror after the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering. And they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day. And I will forsake them and hide my face from them. And they will be devoured. And many evils and troubles will come upon them. So that they will say in that day, have not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us. Now, if you're scoring along at home here, that raises a question. God has just said to Joshua, I will not leave you or forsake you. And then in the next breath, he says, these guys are going to be faithless and I will forsake them and I will leave them. What kind of I will never leave you or forsake you is this if he's just going to do it and he says he's going to do it? What, what, what is this about? I think we can reconcile this actually fairly easily. First, if we look at the initial promise to not leave or forsake, it's in the context of that generation of Israelites entering and possessing the land. Israel was to be brave because the Lord would fight for them. Joshua was to be confident in leading the people into the land because God would not leave or forsake him. So there's a, I think there's some implicit timelines on that. I will not leave you or forsake you. It's when they're entering in the land. Second, more broadly, we have to remember this. The Lord is absolutely faithful. That's his character. But part of being faithful is that you keep your promises for good and for bad. The covenant that the Lord had made with Israel was, and the covenant they agreed to, is a conditional covenant. I called it a bilateral covenant, where God says, if you obey, then I will do this. But if you disobey, then these things are going to come upon you. God, who is the independent God of the cosmos, he, he, ha now, he has to do what he says, right? So you would think the easiest thing to do would be, well, don't make promises. <laughs> don't make promises if your word is going to obligate you to do things. But God makes promises. One of those is, if, if you obey, I will bless you, he says to old covenant Israel. But if you disobey, then there will be punishments. It was really up to Israel. Now, if, this is a thought experiment, it's not what actually happened, if Israel had obeyed faithfully and then God abandoned them, there would be a significant problem. God would not be keeping his word. But we can't impugn the Lord's character if he does what he said he would do, but we just don't like it. That's not a logical argument against God. That's just us whining and complaining, right? God said he would forsake them if they disobeyed. But as long as they obeyed, he would be with them and go with them. And so to help them remember all of this, 
in Deuteronomy 31, God gave them a song. Why a song? Well, I suppose one reason God likes music, right? He's very creative. But particularly here, I would say this, we remember songs longer than prose. And I know that that's true for everyone here because I could start singing some famous commercial jingles to you and I know you'd be able to finish them. And I, and you probably didn't spend a lot of time trying to memorize them. We just memorize songs better than we memorize prose. What does that mean? Two quick applications for us here. We should be praying for Mark and our worship leaders because Mark is actually doing most of the heavy theological lifting here because you'll remember what we sang longer than what I say here from the pulpit. That's just how we've been made. Mark is like wondering, like, what's going on now here? Um, and then second, I would say this, because that's how we're wired, I think by divine design, we probably should pay close attention to what we listen to and guard it. Watch what you listen to, and especially in terms of music, because it stays with us. Fill your mind with good theology by filling your mind with good songs. Before Alistair Begg was canceled, uh, I, I, I would, I would <laughs> we'll talk about that in the Sunday school class in a couple of weeks. Um, before he was canceled, though, I, I, I heard him say, well, if you ever heard Alistair Begg preach before, you know that he's always quoting psalms. That's where he, not psalms, he was always quoting songs and hymns. That's a big part of his preaching. Why? And, and he will say his, prof, his most profound theological training was sitting in church Sunday after Sunday and singing hymns. And, and those just pour out of him. That's just the way we've been designed. So God gives, God gives Israel a song. Song. Now, he tells you, he tells the Israelites, this song is going to serve as a witness against you. When you disobey, then this song will come to mind because you've been singing it. You go, oh, God just is doing to us what he said that he would do. It's going to serve as a witness against them, he says. And that makes me wonder what the incentive for memorizing the song was for them. I'd be like, God says, memorize this song and it will serve as a witness against you when you disobey. And I'd be thinking, I don't think I want to memorize that song. <laughs> There's nothing in it for me other than condemnation. Uh, nevertheless, that, that's, what, that's what God tells him to do. And remember that Mo Moses promised that one day God would give to his people a new heart. That's what we looked at last week. It's in Deuteronomy 30. When that happened, they would be able to obey and live up to the covenant. But that day is far off in the future far off in the future. If you want to know when that was, I would say that was the day of Pentecost that we read about in, in the book of Acts. So it's 1,400 years later for Israel. What's the chance of them obeying the law without a new heart? Zero. Zero. So this song is going to come true. Moses knew that the Israelites would not be long for the land. They would enter into it, but they would not be able to stay. Now they stayed about 800 years, which is a pretty good run from a national standpoint. I mean, think of America. We've been here, what, 250 years, roughly? Okay, so 800 years, that's quite a while. Pretty good national run. And Moses sounds a bit like a scolding parrot here, if you, if you read down through Deuteronomy 31. Sure, you obey me when I'm in the room with you, but the moment I turn my back, he says to them. But for Moses, they didn't even obey him when he was in the room with them, right? So he knows he knows what's going to happen to them. 
And Joshua, who has just received this baton of leadership, the Lord says, sing this song to them. These people, they will not obey you and they will go into exile. And Joshua's like, well, this is a pretty good gig you just gave me to take over this group of people. This feels really hopeless. You can't be feeling too good about this. So Deuteronomy 32 is this song. It's a witness against Israel. And there are lots of songs of Moses in the Pentateuch. This one's a bit of a bummer from start to finish. It's sung from the perspective of the Lord after the Israelites have rebelled and he's judging them. And I'm not gonna walk through the song because we did that in Deuteronomy 28 with the curses a couple weeks ago. If you weren't here, you can you can listen uh, to that. This song is based on those curses. But I do wanna point out that the fundamental sin that's going to do the Israelites in is idolatry. If you have your Bibles open, look at Deuteronomy 32, verses 16 through 18. They stirred him, that is the Lord, to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you. Throughout the song, God is referred to as the rock. And you forgot the God who gave you birth. Well, there's nothing new under the sun here. Idolatry is always the fundamental problem. Remember Paul in Romans 1, he says the same exact thing. You can look at it later, Romans 1, 18 through 25. It's always about idolatry. That's the root of all disobedience. And the song also reminds the Israelites, there is no one like the Lord. A popular refrain in the song is, our rock is not like their rock. It's precisely this reason that idolatry is so wrong. Idolatry is placing hopes or prayers or significance, worship in anything other than God. And all other options other than God are therefore foolish because God is incomparable. There is no one like him. So we, would, we could pause for a moment and ask, what do we place our hope in? I, I suspect most of you are not sacrificing to demons. If you are, tell Josh about it, right? Uh, or Mike when he gets back. I think the fundamental way in which we engage in idolatry today in our particular moment is in the arena of identity. We're obsessed with identity today. I don't think we've ever been more untethered from the source of true identity than we are today, unfortunately. We've been looking in the Sunday school class what it is to be human. We're created in the image of God and that is the source of our significance. That is the source of our meaning, our value, our, our identity. Unfortunately, the world offers finding such things in our careers, our politics, our sexual desires, how we perceive or feel about ourselves. But if we're attributing our identity or grounding it in anything other than the Lord, then we are engaging in idolatry and it is sin against God. Deuteronomy 32 ends with Moses being told that he has been condemned to die for his earlier sin. And it's fitting because some of the strongest theological statements in the entire Bible regarding the sovereignty of God are found in this bummer of a song of Moses. Deuteronomy 32, 29, here's what the Lord says. 
See now that I, even I am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. And when we read that, it's shocking because God is saying, I control things that we don't really expect God to control. We expect God to make alive. We expect him to heal, but God says, I'm sovereign over that, yeah, but I'm sovereign over the opposite stuff too. Death, wounding. And Moses, the great prophet, the great mediator, lawgiver, leader, he would not be able to enter the land because he had dishonored the Lord. The condemnation appears to be final. Moses would die on Mount Nebo. Without entering the land, he would only see it from a distance. A chastened Moses could hardly be blamed for being bitter against the people that caused him to sin. Moses was fond of saying that it was because of you that I got so angry and lost my patience, right? But that's not what we find in the next chapter, though. Not in chapter 33 of Deuteronomy. Moses, the great mediator, performed one last priestly act before he dies. He blessed each of the tribes of Israel. Even facing condemnation and death, Moses turns to grace and he intercedes for the people of Israel, blessing each of the tribes, except for Simeon. Sorry, Simeon. (laughs) You can ask me why later. I'll tell you, I don't really know. Might, Might have had something to do with Simeon's sin. In doing so, I think Moses foreshadows someone that the book of Deuteronomy has been pointing toward throughout its entirety. So let's turn to the final chapter now. Look at Deuteronomy 34. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead, as far as Dan, all Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negev and the plain, that is the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, as far as Zor. And the Lord said to him, this is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor, but no one knows the place of his burial to this day. One quick point on this, the Lord was absolutely sovereign over Moses' death. He claimed that he was sovereign over such, I'm the one who kills, I'm the one who makes alive. Just like he was sovereign over Moses' death, we have to realize he's sovereign over ours as well. We must remember, we will not live one more second or one less second than God intends. For those who are reconciled to the Lord, that should be of comfort to us. That doesn't mean that we go out and do foolish things. But God has you, and he is good, and he is kind. He has numbered all of our days. Verse 7 of Deuteronomy 34, Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed, his vigor unabated. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. 
Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. I guess I would just comment on this. The death of Moses was as devastating to the people of Israel as we might expect. What were they going to do? How could they go on without him? Of course, that question is answered in the next verse. Verse 9, Joshua the son of Nun was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. Here we're reminded again that the Lord is never limited by human leaders. He'll raise them up as he needs them. He always has another because he is the one who raises them up. He was with Joshua as he had been with Moses. And of course, the book could have ended right there, launched us right into the next book of the Bible, the book of Joshua, but it doesn't end there. Look how it ends. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. When the final form of Deuteronomy was compiled, I, I, I think Moses wrote all the Pentateuch. I don't think he wrote these last few parts. That would be kind of weird. Um, but still by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it's what, it's what we're supposed to have. At the, at the time of that writing, no one like Moses had arisen. No one had stepped forward to replace him. That's, that's an amazing eulogy. It's high praise, and it comes with the imprimatur of divine inspiration. It was true. No one had arisen like Moses. But the book of Deuteronomy demands that we keep looking for someone like Moses. Why? Because Moses himself promised this in Deuteronomy 18, codified into the Mosaic law. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Moses saying, one day God will raise up someone like me. Listen to him. That's the command. What are the criteria for being a prophet like Moses? One whom the Lord knows face to face, mighty in signs and wonders. So you know where I'm going with this, right? Because we're a church of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? We're here to worship Jesus. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer here. He is the greater than Moses prophet. But let's evaluate it. Jesus Christ not only knows God face to face, but he is God. John 1, 1 tells us that even explicitly. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God. And, and the language of with God, it's face to face with God. And he is God. He is God. Who's greater than Jesus in signs and wonders? Remember when people were around Jesus, they would say, who is like this man that even the winds and the waves obey him? Throughout this time, throughout the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is described as a great leader, the great mediator, the great prophet, the great lawgiver. If you're following along with Jesus, you would check those boxes. Check, 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 check. Jesus is presented in the Gospels as all of these things and more. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is our great high priest, our mediator who stands between us and God the Father. Moses went up on a mountain and received the law of God. Jesus went up on a mountain and delivered the law of God. 
Moses, in a great act of mediation, spoke words of blessing upon the people before he died, even in the face of paying the penalty for his own sin. Jesus spoke words of blessing and forgiveness from the cross while he bore the burden of our sin. Moses comforted his people by promising that God would never leave them or forsake them unless they disobeyed. Jesus comforted his people by promising that he he would never leave them or forsake them even if they disobeyed. Moses predicted that one day God would initiate a new covenant that would result in the transformation of the hearts of others. But it was a distant dream for Moses. Jesus went to the cross to initiate the new covenant and then sent the Spirit of God, his Spirit, that we might be transformed. Codified into the Mosaic law is the promise that one day the Lord would raise up a prophet like Moses with the command attached, Listen to him. So remember the words of the story that we opened with, the transfiguration. On a mountain, Jesus Christ was transfigured with a few of his disciples. His clothes are radiant, shining with the glory of the Lord, probably reminding us of Moses who left the presence of the Lord, his face glowing, and he had to wear a veil so that the people would not be probably discouraged as they saw that glory fade here the glory and the light is like emanating from Jesus himself. Out of nowhere appear the two greatest prophets of the Old Testament, Elijah, the mighty prophet of Mount Carmel fame, Moses, the great lawgiver, and a mighty voice booms from heaven. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. This is the guy. He's the one we've been waiting for. He's the one that Deuteronomy is driving towards because he's the one that God has been driving towards that we might be saved. Jesus is that prophet, greater than Moses. And Moses himself in the presence of Jesus was there to testify to it. And the command is sound, listen to him. The question for us is, will we listen to him? One other concluding note. At the end of Deuteronomy, we saw that Moses was forbidden from entering the land due to his own sin. But in the presence of Jesus, Moses finally got to cross the Jordan into the land. Not on his own merit, but because he came with Jesus. Isn't that the gospel in miniature? It's only with Jesus that we get life. In a demonstration of just fun grace, Moses finally got to stand in the land. But isn't that just like Christ? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, uh, what an amazing story. It's, 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 It's our origin story that we have covered today. And Father, I pray that you would help us to understand how those events that took so took place so long ago that they're actually part of our story. And Father, as we read that, may we understand what was going on then, but more than that, may we understand how it drives us towards Christ. The answer, the goal, the purpose, the reason, it has always been about the sending of your Son. It was true back then as they looked ahead for it, and it is true for us as we look back on it. 
Father, bless us that we might see Jesus as we read the scriptures. Bless us that we might go with Christ wherever he would take us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.